Hey friends, you're listening to High Performance, our gift to you for free every week. It's the podcast that turns the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. So today allow the greatest leaders, thinkers, sports stars, entertainers and entrepreneurs to be your teacher. Now I've waited for this episode for a long time. The man joining us today is someone I look up to so much. What an incredible life he's lived. What an amazing business he's worked at. What stunning moments he's been central to. On today's High Performance Podcast, Lessons for Your Life, from the former Chief Marketing Officer of Nike, Greg Hoffman. What makes high performance? Yeah, it's you kind of meeting and achieving and getting past your own potential, but I actually think certainly in the time we're in today, it's about making those around you better. High performance to me means a high degree of self-confidence and self-awareness hold the smallest detail to the highest standard that means the number of stripes on here and how the i'm just going to get geeky on you and how the word is framed is the time spent on that the last 10 percent you're saying that these details matter just as much as the the coffee mug itself be empathetic be curious and never play it safe play to win I think they're the three most important ingredients to leading a life of innovation. So I read Greg's book, Emotion by Design, when I was on a recent holiday, and I've never made more notes in a book than I did on this one. I was underlining, I was circling, I was scribbling away, and Harriet was laughing at me. We were on the beach, we took a family holiday to Antigua, and she was like, you know you're meant to be reading that book, not writing that book, but there was so much in there to learn from. And what you'll hear in this conversation is Greg talking about what he learned from working with Kobe Bryant, um, how he dealt working directly with LeBron James, what it was like being involved in the campaign for Colin Kaepernick and taking the knee at Nike. But you'll also hear about the struggles of growing up as a mixed race child being adopted by a white family, how he turned to art to help him deal with racism, how he failed and he struggled, but how he managed to make his way almost to the very top of Nike. And he's done it through putting emotion at the heart of everything. And I think this is really interesting because actually we know more about each other than ever before because you know what Instagram posts your friends are looking at or the comments that they're leaving. And you can use Find My Friends to find out where your family members are and what's going on. You know so much about people that you didn't know before, but I think you know so little at the same time because we're more connected, but we're less connected on a really genuine emotional level. And Greg got to the emotion, to the heart of people. And that's how... He managed to tell the story of Nike through emotion. So you're going to love this conversation of a man who has done amazing things. I've taken loads from it for all the businesses that I'm involved in. I know you will as well. So sit back and enjoy today's high performance podcast with the former CMO of Nike, Greg Hoffman, with real words of wisdom and incredible learnings comes next. Oh, and by the way, make sure you stick around to the very end of today's episode. We're going to be joined by a high-performance listener who has done something no woman on the planet has ever managed before. It's an amazing story. She speaks to us after you've heard from Greg. Enjoy the episode. And hey, if you like it, please share it with anyone you know. Thanks again for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. 
Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Well, Greg, thank you very much for joining us on High Performance Let's get straight into this because you have worked with the likes of Kobe. You've collaborated with LeBron. You've created campaigns for the Brazil national football team. You were involved in the famous period where Colin Kaepernick helped to change the world with his involvement with Nike. You have been responsible for the way that one of the most iconic brands in the world is used. So taking all of that experience and putting it all into one place, how do you define high performance when you sit before us today? Well, I do think it's about taking risks and pushing past what you think is your potential, going past that. And while you're doing that, making sure you're empowering others. I think high performance is lifting up your teammates and team members. And I think in this case, high performance in the terms of writing the book is what can you share with the world or other individuals that would be helpful uh, in terms of what the potential they're trying to reach in their life or in their profession. And when you wrote this book, did you write it with a belief that anyone can think big in the way that you had to in your time at Nike, that anyone can take a risk and that anyone can achieve amazing things with the right people around them? Absolutely. And I do think that we all have creative capacity and it was part of, I felt my responsibility to share some of the things I experienced within a workplace where people were allowed to live up to their creative capacity, whether they were a right brain or left brain thinker. First of all, let's begin then with the difference between the right brain and the left brain thinker. For people listening to this that are thinking, hold on, yeah, what's Greg talking about? Explain that to us. Yeah, well, right brain thinkers, as I classify myself, oftentimes you think in a non-linear way, you consider yourself somewhat of a creative type, um, maybe a daydreamer, as I like to describe them. And maybe on the left side, left brain thinkers are a bit more analytical, maybe think more rationally and linear. But there's always two ways to solve a problem. You, you know, you can take 
the long and windy road, or you can go straight down the linear path, but both can achieve exceptional results. There's just not one way. And I definitely want to deliver that message here today. So if we can go back to the start of that journey that led you to seeing the world in that creative right brain way, would you tell us a little bit about your own fascinating story then, Greg? Because for people that don't know, you were a biracial boy that was adopted at six six weeks old by a white couple in America. And one of my favourite questions we like asking people is, what are the ghosts of your childhoods that still rattle around your adult bodies today? What kind of lessons did you learn that you took into your successful adult life? Yeah, well, no, that's that's a, a, a great question. And, and certainly being resilient um, and, um, you know, not being satisfied with the status quo was something you know I experienced early on um, as somewhat of an outsider. Uh, certainly, um, growing up in the school system that I did, you know, as someone who was you know was biracial, half black, half white, and grew up in a, a white experience, if you will. Oftentimes, I was looking from the outside in, but it was sports and art actually that allowed me to to kind of flourish, to see my own talent and um, activate the the hidden talents that I had. Um, It's one thing to have innate talent or characteristics, but oftentimes they're buried inside and you do need people to kind of reveal those for you. And I think great teachers, great parents, great coaches are the ones that's part of their role. Um, That's part of empathy, right? The power of empathy and being empathetic, whether you're any one of those parental figures I mentioned is extremely crucial for for a kid's life. It just so happened in the late 70s and early 80s, um, you were taught to not see color. So adults back then weren't looking at your experience and saying, I wonder if he's doing okay. So the good news throughout all that is those experiences, um, some of the adversity I experienced is, is I brought that with me over the years into the workplace. And I was allowed to work at a company like Nike um, where I could bring my own perspective and experience into the work. And so when you mention campaigns like Colin Kaepernick, I walk into the room and I evaluate those opportunities with those experiences. So when I am sitting across the room from someone who is also biracial, who was also adopted by a white family, I can relate and I can also amplify his message with the platform we have. So at the end of the day, um, I, I just want to emphasize that the, the, the power of empathy, and when I say that, it means seeing what maybe others see on the surface, right? But going beyond that and finding what others don't, finding what is maybe invisible. Um, and that uh, applies to creating great stories and campaigns, um, as well as, I think, being a great leader. How, how do we do that yeah. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll say this. It's like, in, and I'll use the creative process as an example. You know, every great innovation, whether it's product or whether it's an advert, if you will, the first part of that process is finding the truth or insight that you want to reveal to the world. And it's not just right in front of you. You know, you don't just say Cristiano Ronaldo is fast and then build a campaign off that. It's going to lack a level of distinction because you haven't dug deeper. And if you keep asking the questions, is his first step faster than his opponents? Like, what is it 
about the speed and you go deeper and deeper. You know, there's a famous um, Michael Jordan commercial, which is uh, my favorite. I wasn't part of it, but that idea of, you know, people spending the time with him to learn that he missed 9,000 shots in his career up until that point. And 26 times he was asked to take the game winning shot and missed. So you haven't even started how you're going to reveal that. You're just getting under the, the assumptions and observations that people have at first glance. And that's what separates the best brands from the good brands is they're able to peel back the layers, right? And what did your parents do to you? at that early age that allowed you to think in this way? How did they not only feed your creativity, but also help to build your resilience? Because we have a lot of parents, a lot of teachers that listen to this podcast. And I think the insights that you can offer could be really valuable for them. That's a a great question. And maybe to answer it, I want to illustrate the bedroom I grew up with, with my two brothers. We didn't have much, right? So it's a small room. So you got to get three beds in there. Well, guess what the other three elements to that bedroom were? my drawing and drafting table, a sand-filled weightlifting set in the middle, right? With, I mean, the whole deal. And then what they did is they put a wood frame around the entire white wall on one of the walls as if it was the, the frame for a painting and said, this is your mural. You can draw whatever you want on this mural. And so that's where I started drawing all the sports logos for all the teams I love. That's what set me off this path of design and branding and marketing, um, as well as just being obsessed with comic books and superheroes. Part of that is escapism, right? You're finding that in art because maybe in your daily life, um, you're facing some challenges that you're not ready to maybe overcome. So what I would say there is back to this, it's just like putting your teammates in the right position to win. Just like your, your children, you have to find those, those hidden talents, right? And do everything you can to, to support and foster them um, because it just doesn't happen um, on its own or by chance. So as a father of two children yourself now that are at college age, what sort of methods did you use to allow them to discover their own light? Great question. And it's funny when you start put, hey, I think you're really talented in this area. You might get a little bit of pullback. Part of it was really trying to emphasize the characteristic of curiosity, and again, if there's one rule I have in life, it's it's be curious. Complacency is the enemy of creativity and so many other things in, in, in life, right? And so with my kids, it's like every trip we took, every time we traveled as a family, it was about what are we going to see? Who are we going to meet? Um, what are we going to do? And let's talk about those experiences and let's appreciate the opportunities we have to learn being a lifelong learner. You mentioned Kobe Bryant, unbelievable curiosity, boundless. And the fact that anytime he walked into a room where we were to talk about, you know, a brand strategy or, or a campaign, the fact that he was the one delivering the insights and the points of inspiration to us that he found through new emerging technology or architecture or entertainment, as he's going for his fifth championship, he's finding the time to soak up everything around him. And then, like any great teacher, wants to not just 
bottle it up, but share it with you. And that gets back to you know, your question about what, what makes high performance. Yeah, it's you kind of meeting and achieving and getting past your own potential. But I actually think certainly in the time we're in today, it's about making those around you better. Many people would have Kobe Bryant down as the epitome of high performance. Sadly, he will never get the chance to come on this podcast and for us to have this kind of a conversation. So I'd love to hear from you when you look back on the time you spent with him. Is there one memory or one day where you really felt that you had a true insight into the way he thought, the way he acted, the way he felt that you would like to share with us? Well, absolutely. I I remember coming into a, a, a meeting, again, a yearly meeting, and um, he said, you know, I got something to share with everybody and I, and, and you're just not going to believe it. And it's like, well, let, let's see what it is. And he's like, you're just going to have to wait, you know, till, till we get closer to the end of this meeting. And, but he kept referencing what he wanted to show. And, and then it finally came time. And, um, uh, basically what he had was a demo on the er- early stage augmented reality technology. You know, today we take it for granted. You can go into a restaurant, hold up your phone, put it on the QR code, and you get a wealth of information or a, a store or any anything. So here is the, one of the best athletes on the planet coming to you with emerging tech to say, I think this will help tell my story and the story of how this product will make you a better athlete if we use this and test it and that's actually was our job right so you can imagine what it's like to be an audience to that when your job as a marketer is to be aware of like all the things emerging trends in in consumer engagement and how you tell stories and so that's just one example to just say that i know the phrase be a lifelong learner gets thrown around a lot but that's what i take from him and that relationship beyond basketball is this insatiable curiosity and will to learn from all aspects of life. I think we can all take something from that. But that to me was a big theme that I picked up in your book, Greg, that all of these elite level athletes that you were lucky enough to work with, or even the comedians like Kevin Hart in the, in a different domain from the outside, they might appear to be almost like clothes horse or vessels that you project a story on. But it was actually the opposite of it. They were the ones that were coming and challenging you and asking questions. Is that often a little known trait of high performers in your experience that that that, that they push back, they create friction as much as it appeared to them? Yeah, oftentimes from the outside, I think whether it's us or professional athletes or celebrities, it might appear as if if these individuals are one dimensional, and. Um, it's you know part of my job, right? Um, leading kind of the the teams responsible for expressing the brand in these athletes is is revealing the mosaic of their personality and the different characteristics and traits. And that's why you use humor a lot because we can't all relate to the fierce competitor, but we can relate to some of the um, whether it's it's the the humor in sports or the vulnerability that comes with failure we can all relate to that i think that's that's the essence of why just do it has resonated because it's something that each generation can relate to as well as everyday athletes like 
like at least myself, I'm not going to include you guys in that. You're, you're at a different level. But and so my, my point is, is back to the to someone like Kevin Hart that most people didn't realize he not only loved fitness, but it was about his willingness and pursuit of sharing that, especially with underserved communities who have barriers um, to an access to being fit or haven't been inspired or spoken to in the right way or in a way that resonates in a deep way. So I was very inspired through um, all the work we did from him because I think oftentimes, especially today, um, seeing so many influential individuals use their platform to truly you know, go beyond just products and transactions and really make change in the world that, that we certainly need. But there's almost like an unspoken bit in that relationship that, and the ones that you detail in the book, which is they had to trust you. And I'm interested about how did you build up trust with these guys that must be surrounded all the time by entourages and people that are making demands at the time that they were willing to make themselves vulnerable in your company to project an image? Yeah, well, certainly, you know, number one is you, you always have to remember that you're standing on the shoulders of those who came before you. High performance to me means a high degree of self-confidence and self-awareness. If you take one away, the other falls, in my opinion, over time. High confidence can get you pretty far in the short term. But I think today, certainly where we're living as leaders, we also need to be aware. And so first and foremost, being aware that as a brand leader, you stand on the equity that's been built before you, right? And so when an athlete comes in, they're also, they've grown up with that brand, back to the idea of emotion and emotion by the design. They have that emotional attachment that's born from years of, of seeing images and films and slogans. And so that's where that trust is built before they even come into the room oftentimes. Then um, it's back to, I can't say this enough, it's listening before you lead, right? When I look at some of the times um, I missed or we missed with a campaign or something, it's because we didn't listen. We had a preconceived idea of what we wanted to accomplish and we just, we just did that. Versus you sit down with the athlete, you really get deep on what barriers they're trying to overcome in terms of athleticism or in the game, or if it's storytelling, what is it that they want to say to the world? Or how do they see, not how you see their style of play, like how do they break down their style of play? You know, And I think that's really important. So I just happened to work at a brand that embraced failure as success, right? When you think of innovation, if failure only equals failure, you will not be an innovation leader, whether you're a startup or an established brand. You have mm. to have that space where people can, can miss every now and then. So are you saying there that f failure is the price of creativity? If you're going to be creative, you are going to fail at some point. That's right. And you have to allow that and embrace that incentivize risk-taking in your culture not, a, not on everything but how'd they do that then at nike when I mean, you share a lovely story in your book of when jeff hollister came into the room when you were had not been there very long and he was the third employee to ever work for nike 
And I want to get the words right here. You said he talked to the staff in vivid detail about the values and the maxims that defined Nike. And as he left the room, he delivered to give anything less than your best is to sacrifice the gift. Like I get goosebumps yeah. just saying yeah. those words, yeah. right? That's right. So how was this culture created? How did you buy into this? How was the message given to you at Nike that made it so powerful you spent your career right. there? Well, I think in true fashion, it's it's the words, right, with the image of Steve Prefontaine, the distance runner from the University of Oregon. And that's, I think, Nike's ability and the art of the way it's built its brand is conveying those maxims and those stories in a way that is vivid and and oftentimes combining multiple um, mediums to hit all your senses. And so me as a, as a kid, it's like as a teenager for me to during the 1984 Olympics to see the I love LA ad on, on my, on the little 12 inch black and white TV of this musician, Randy Newman driving down the streets of LA singing, I love LA. And here comes Carl Lewis out of the screen and into the Santa Monica beach. And as a, as a long jumper, I'm like, I mean, this goes way beyond product, right? And it's emotion. Yes, it's about being in awe of what you're seeing, but what's separated Nike from everybody else is at the same time, they're very clear on the invitation. They are inviting you to come along on this movement of potential, always. This isn't just a product, it's a movement, right? And you get to be part of it. And certainly as someone who who got to participate in launching all the innovations across all the different product categories for a couple of decades, you know, at the end of the day, yes, we were very good about communicating the rational benefits of why it will make you jump higher or run longer. But the last question we always made sure we wanted to answer is how will this empower you to be a part of something greater than yourself? So if we're talking about a shoe that makes you fast, we're going to lead with a statement called find your fast. And we're going to put you shoulder to shoulder with the best athletes in the world because you belong with them. When I work with, you know, even uh, startups as well, who are, you know, oftentimes just staring down, perfecting that product, trying to get it to market as fast as possible, getting them to pull up for a minute and saying, well, what, what is the invitation that I get to be part of? And let's make sure we're building that world. In, in high definition. I think that's really important. So in the spirit of empathy then, imagine that, so when you're working with some of these smaller businesses that like you say, that that they're looking at the bottom line, the profits, the market share, and, and they're very numbers driven or left brain driven in the definition that you gave us. How do you empathize with them, but still get them to bring the emotion in? Well, that's why I say creativity is a team sport. You're not dividing an organization or a team in two, right? The whole thing, and that's that's honestly why I use the FC Barcelona example in the book. You know, the Pep Guardiola squad, the sixty-four passes. Yeah, and if you look, I mean, there's numerous examples of passing the ball forty, fifty, sixty times because there's unbelievable chemistry on the field. It's like second nature our second sight everybody's moving together sharing the energy on the field and so you know part of my role as someone who was oftentimes leading the creative functions of nike part of it was being a great 
partner to the business teams and making sure we're moving on that field together. And um, I'm not just saying that for effect. I, I really do do mean that. And I always believe that great business growth and revenue growth is a byproduct of a great business strategy. You don't start the strategy by saying, I want to achieve great business growth. It's like you, you start with what is the problem we're trying to solve? How is this going to serve our audience both the rational side and the emotional side of our audience's aspirations. What are they asking for us? You have to, both the creative teams and the business teams have to stay focused on that first and foremost. The, the consumer decides, like bottom line. When you lose focus of that, that I think is when you start to get into maybe territorialism or a lack of respect between different teams. And so that's why I like this idea of creativity as, as a team sport, because you need the entire organization to respect the craft of creative teams and individuals and their, the necessity for them to create that, the types of elements and stories that are responsible for the emotional connection, not just the rational one. And we can't do that if the business teams aren't also brought in and respected in that way. Easier said than done. And I, I sit here like, yeah, I mean, it was just super. But yeah, it takes years you know, to kind of build that level of chemistry. Can we talk then about how you do build that? Because there are lots of business leaders that listen to this podcast. There's some in the room right now who want to get their business moving forward as a whole. And when you became the CMO at Nike, one of the things you took on was changing the structure to get everyone pulling in the same direction. So what did you learn both from poor and good practice that people listening to this can quite easily implement into their own businesses? Yeah, we're in a, a, a digital arena now in terms of how a brand goes to market and engages with the consumer in real time second by second so the speed at which we have to work is 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 evolving as, as we speak and so you you have to first and foremost eliminate a culture of of waiting and a culture of permission those wouldn't work on the football pitch either right um and and you need to introduce and 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 really cultivate the characteristics of speed and agility right and so how do you do that i think whether it's figuratively or literally, you need to pull people out of these old silos that might exist in a small or large company, right? And you need to kind of reset this idea of, I need to wait for a brief, and then I need to wait to get consensus and approval. All those take you away from being a high-performing team. And so I'm very much into getting people, that's why I like the newsroom mentality, where people are sitting together um, shoulder to shoulder with the different disciplines. You're expanding your peripheral vision, number one. Um, you're probably getting to better results because you're, you're embracing a level of discourse um, and diverse perspectives that will make it stronger. And then, yes, at some point, you do need to have an ability to get past those rule breaking. Who's going to finally say we're good? Because the last thing you can have too, it, it get, again, it gets back to speed and agility, is as long as everybody knows what position they're supposed to be in, then they can optimally, optimally um, contribute to this, essentially, a high-speed 
sports car. I, I used to use one of the things I used in 2010 when I took on kind of trying to inter- engage these teams was I took like a 1950s pit stop. And I mean, I think it was uh, almost uh, a minute of hammering and taking the wheels off. And then, of course, Formula One today. And I, I would go here as like, we need to be here. But there's only one way we can do that. And that's if we operate as one team. We've been working independently. We kind of really, to be honest, look like this old pit crew. We do. Um, and we're getting away with it because we're operating on top of so much momentum and love that the consumer has for us. But we need to quickly get to this. And this is like a second and a half. I mean, you, you guys would know more, but it's just like, boom, yep. and, and you're out. And that's the speed at which you need to deliver to the consumer's expectations today. Otherwise, they'll, they, there's plenty of options. I wonder how you saw that, have. though, because you were in a business that was successful, turning over billions of dollars. Everyone loved Nike. So what was it that made you see that it still wasn't right and could be better? Well, part of it was the rise of social media platforms or social sharing platforms, you know, and I talk about, you know, uh, YouTube first coming on the scene in like 2005, right? Before that, it was like, I send you a huge photo and it kills your whole email for a day because you have no memory, you know, and here comes YouTube. And now all of a sudden you can start to, so it's, it's a rolling, evolving thing. It didn't happen just over time, but then, you know, Instagram really starts to rise in 2012. And so back to this idea of if you're getting outside yourself and you're constantly looking at the landscape and the cultural current, especially within consumer behavior, and you're seeing things like Facebook or Instagram or YouTube and many others today, and you have a way of, this is really important too, you're not just talking about that stuff, you're literally visualizing how you want to incorporate that into your offense, right? So um, I really believe in, and, and it's an overstated phrase, right? A picture's worth a thousand words. Um, but how many times have you been in a conversation? It's like, hey, remember when we had that idea? How come that we never did anything about that? Because no one, no one took it any further. And there's only so many times you can talk and about it. And then years something. later, you see someone else do it and making billions and you think, why? <laughs> I know. So uh, one of one of the things I implemented early on is is a visualization capability, where any meeting that happened, if there was a great idea in that meeting of how to use one of these new emerging platforms, you walk out of it, you and you sit with the team, and within a week, it's like, well, this is what that would look like. Do you know how much time you save? And you know how much confidence you give someone to go beyond words and you actually sh- show someone. And that's why I always called it, you know, what's, what's the movie poster of the idea? Because a movie poster is like, you got to hook someone like literally within a second, within that image, no words. Yes, the title of the, uh, the movie, but that's that idea of the power of, of visualization. And it's no different than a coach not only needs to tell, but back to writing a book, it's not just telling, it's showing. So I have a vision, but I need to illustrate that vision in a way where you can see it, not just hear me talking about it. Well, one of the other things that jumped out at me reading the book was the amount of time that you and your team would invest in self-development and training. 
So these are way days where you describe you go and play soccer in Buenos Aires or you'd get the Bigfoot hunter to come and speak to yeah. your guys. That They're, one. Like really yeah. quite eclectic choices. Yeah. But there was two things that I was interested in. One, how much time did you invest in in that self-development and training? And secondly, what were the kind of big innovations that you took from that that actually ended up with something tangible on, uh, as a consequence? Yeah, they're great questions. And I think it's it's something that you, you want to cultivate. So that means, you know, really each quarter trying to figure out a way where you can share as a team. Even, even if you're not going anywhere, what are people seeing either in their personal life or in their professional life? Because, again, I'm a big believer in creating what I call um, a vision advantage when an organization is working together in a collective way that their their vision expands in terms of how they see opportunities, right? Because if everyone's looking out and sharing and you're bringing that back and discussing it, that's so much more powerful than what the opposite of that would be. Um, and that's why, you know, maybe once a year I would take the team on some of these trips, you know, and that is why we're where we'd see where we'd have Maria Kondo that who wrote the art of tidying up, come to talk to us. And someone could say, well, what, what does that have to do with, well, we need, we can all be better editors, whether it's trying to edit down to the, the best slogan you've ever heard or walking into Nike town, London and feeling like. It's, it's a bit cluttered and you need to get down to the essential story you want to tell. But I'll give you a local example. Um, I took the team to Savile Row and we spent some time with um, these, these amazing tailors, right? Some of them had been doing this for 30 years or maybe more, to be honest. And um, watching the level of craft and respect that they had for, for the, um, the ceremony of getting the best tailored suit. And what did we do? We walked out of that and we asked a simple question. What would this look like for sneakers? Within a year, we introduced the first Nike sneaker customization shop, right? Long before it became a thing, okay, in New York City. And guess what? Within another year and a half, we probably had over 100 of those sneaker shops, right? where you could walk in and customize the leather, the color, you could put your name on it, things we take for granted today. But my point is the, the inception of the idea started by just spending time in a city like London with individuals who are innovating in their own craft, because here's the deal. Um, I've found anyway, certainly in marketing, when there's been, been big revolutions in the way you market, it comes from transference. Oftentimes the ideas are coming from outside your sector and your job is to pull those in. You know, we talked about the, the Air Max, right? A huge shoe for the UK, right? Big time. Well, Nike Air, Nike Air came from, um, you know, the exploration of space. There was a, a, an engineer um, for NASA who was creating uh, astronaut helmets, right? Uh, or, or innovating for them with a blow-molded blow rubber technique and came to Nike and had those conversations. And you have a company that's open to having that dialogue. And the next thing you know, it becomes arguably one of the greatest innovations in shoe history and sneaker history. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So what question would you encourage people to ask? And I'll, and I'll, I'll set some context behind this, that I've been involved with sports teams that sometimes they'll bring in a guest speaker to come and speak to the players. And they leave and my big frustration is they haven't asked the question of what did you learn from that guy what was it that you've taken that you can apply it's almost like they've gone oh that was interesting and then the learning walks out of the building and I'm interested if there was anybody that maybe just listens to this podcast what questions should they be asking on the back of this that they can apply to their world that you were doing at yes, Nike? S- some of it is I, I don't care if you're creating your own website or your own podcast or Instagram page or personal brand, whatever it is. And you can break it down with terms of what am I supposed to be looking at when I'm walking into an experience like that? And you can say, here's the things that I'm seeing that are just visual or about style, how a fashion brand uses color, right? Is known for color, whether it's Hermes, orange or Tiffany blue or that. What, what, what would you take that from that in terms of owning a color for your personal brand. I don't care if you're, a, you're an employee of one yourself and you're starting on that journey. Like, what does that look like? And then, you know, function. Function can be, wow, I walked into this space and the, the ceremony and journey they took me on in terms of all the way down to how they packaged the product that I bought and put it in the bag. If you've been to Japan, I mean, it's just amazing, the ceremony and the respect they have for, for products. Did you learn anything from that? Um, so oftentimes you're looking at high-level craftsmanship and, and pride that people have in other sectors. And you're saying, how would that translate into my business? Again, it's not about I, I know a lot of the things I share in the book oftentimes are big, either big campaigns or trips to amazing places, but it's amazing what you can do just um, in the city you live in or even in the palm of your hand through your phone. And that's why, I mean, it, I wouldn't say I'm proud of it, but I have 86,000 photos in my iPhoto because I'm quite obsessed. And I, I would say about 5,000 of those are just screenshots of things I see through my phone. Could be quotes, could be um, an upcoming movie that's coming. Whatever it is, I'm trying to capture all that. And then I have a system to kind of a system to log um, and and that because all it's going to take is one of those ideas, um, one of those pieces of inspiration to hit. On the one hand, you need to edit, edit, 
edit, right? To reveal what matters most. And on the other hand, you need to constantly pull in inspiration around you. So it's okay to have tension, right? <laughs> so that's a good thing. I'm talking of tension. Yeah. In the book, you say, stop trying to be perfect. Loosen up and you'll discover new territory. Mm. But then at the same time, you match that up with attention to exacting details. So how can we be absolutely sure on the details and really focus on those tiny things, but at the same time, trying to loosen up? Yeah, it's great. And you speak to the contradiction contradictions that oftentimes certainly rattle around in my head. And I want to say that that's okay. Because if you're trying to go to new places and take the viewer or the audience to new places in terms of something that they hadn't thought of before, then you're going to have to push push to that place. And thankfully, um, that was actually, yeah, I, I my first job uh, before Nike, I was too obsessed with perfection. And thankfully, my boss just came over to my computer and took the computer mouse and essentially kind of ruined the layout I had of this poster. But actually, when I look back at all the work I created during that time, that's the absolute best piece of work I did because I broke out of this uh, effort to always be precise and controlling in terms of what I was creating. I guess what I'm saying is even the most eclectic design, um, a design that may even look messy um, at first glance, emotion by design, the by design is about being intentional with your choices, right? To And being intentional to create that emotion and stir that emotion in people. And so I also, yes, I, I, I like to use a quote, you know, from Albert Einstein, and it's, there's controversy whether you actually said it, but make it as simple as possible, but not simpler. So you're refining something, you're subtracting something that's not essential, but not to the point where you're losing the soul and the personality of what it is you intend to bring to the world. I think that's really important for people. And you are trying to simplify the lives of your audience, right? You don't want them to have to work so what, through. What process would you go through to do that? Well, it would it would depend. So if you're designing, certainly, let's just take a, a, a shoe or, or even a book cover. Um, do the elements that exist add to the experience in a positive way? Do they make it more intuitive uh, to the reader? Um, or do they, they create inconvenience and distraction and all those other things? And you start removing the things that aren't contributing to the greater good. And that's the, that's the process of editing. And I don't care if it's, uh, again, a shoe, this coffee mug or whatever. There's been a process of simplification, but not to the point where you remove the, the feeling that you want the person to have, right? Because that can happen too. And believe me, I've been responsible for work that gets out there and it's flat because we've, we've spent too much time trying to be perfect and taking a lot of uh, things away that, quite frankly, were contributing to that emotional kind of feeling. Um, so what you would, would your jump-off point then be, Greg? That because you can always keep finessing, you can keep editing, like, what was your moment when you go, no, that's it, we launch, we, uh, we get our products out there in the world? Yeah, and I'll just keep saying this. That's, that's why it's a team sport, because it's, you can't be object, objective if it's just you. It's just not possible. So you need people in your team and, quite frankly, in your life um, that are, are providing 
that um, sometimes that tension, like, okay, we're at the point where this has gone far enough. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. And here's why. And you're, you're using each other as a sounding board. To, and would you to do that explicitly? That. Would you give somebody that role to say, I want you to come and be the dissenter in this relationship? Would you, give, would you assign people... Yeah, well, I, I kind of it's it's what I had just the 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 scale of of the amount of work and the global nature of it um, and the velocity of of the stories we were putting out there. You know, we would go through three different checkpoints, right, to kind of hone those stories, right. Checkpoint one, in its broadest sense, what are we trying to say to the world, and generally, how is this going to look and feel, and you know, phase two, it's like, okay, now we're getting closer and um, we're starting to go through that editing process. And then final, the final phase is where you're, what I talk about in the book is, is obsessing that last 10%. Because what I found, and I'm sure you've found this in athletics, is that often it doesn't help if you've played 80 minutes and then you take the last 10 minutes off because you're tired and it's good enough. You're up to zero and you know, it's pretty much in hand and then you lose. Well, the same thing uh, applies to, you know, when you see something that hasn't been finished well, all you have to do is walk down the street and sometimes look at architecture um, of, of whether it's office buildings or restaurants and things where it doesn't seem like that respect for finishing and the details was taken all the way. At some point, the team said, I think we're good. So who's in the room that's going to say we're actually not? And so that's when I say things like hold the smallest detail to the highest standard. That means the number of stripes on here and how the I'm just going to get geeky on you and how the word is framed is the time spent on that the last 10%. You're saying that these details matter just as much as the the coffee mug itself. If you look at Apple, man, you're talking about an entire culture, an employee base that is in lockstep and understands that you know, they all hold the smallest detail to the highest standard. And you feel that as, as a consumer when you buy their products. You appreciate that. You can't articulate that, but you are buying in and you're feeling um, that sweat that they've put into every single thing. What we're really talking about here is passion. It's passion for the thing you're involved in. It's passion for the smallest detail. It's passion for making it as good as it can be. There's an issue, though, with passion that you talk about in the book, because what passion actually involves is us revealing quite a lot of ourselves. So what would you say to people for whom revealing their passion makes them feel vulnerable? It makes them feel anxious. Well, yeah. I mean, first and foremost, if it's passion in, passion out, if you're not putting the passion into your products into that launch, into your marketing, then how do you expect the consumer to have passion for you, right? So it's a two-way street, right? So passion is absolutely essential and emotion is part of passion. It drives passion. But I believe that the brands today and the brands that are ultimately going to resonate the most are the brands that feel most human, feel the most relatable. Those are the brands that will feel the most personal, right? And same with leaders today. Back to that idea of engaging with your teams and each other, your peers, on both uh, the rational level and emotional level. Um, that means revealing a bit more about yourselves and being a bit more vulnerable. 
and it's not a sign of weakness. It's a commitment um, to to getting that level of chemistry, camaraderie, and trust that I think is needed versus walking around like everything's good, you know, because it's actually not. Uh, you know, oftentimes with those those that might be around you. So how do you create those spaces to allow people to flourish because they're not fearing the repercussions on, on putting a little bit more of themselves out there? Let's talk about that then, because really early in your Nike career, you had the chance to design a logo for, and for people that don't know this, Dion Sanders was kind of like a two-sport superhero primetime, right? He played in the MLB and the NFL. You were asked to design a logo for him and you failed. Now, you didn't get the gig. Someone else did. You put passion into it. You opened yourself up. You were vulnerable in that position. What did that teach you about being vulnerable, failing, and still being able to get up and go again? And how did the culture at Nike feed and allow you to do that? It's a, a great, great question. Because I hadn't experienced that yet. Um, it, was, it was pretty smooth sailing up until that point. Through college, through the early part of the internship, and you're feeling pretty good about yourself. And then you're face, facing this opportunity that in my head, I should have known that they're just allowing you to do this, right? <laughs> you know, there should have been a voice like, do you <laughs> really think that they're going to, but I didn't have those voices yet, the voices of doubt, right? Thank, and thankfully, but I had uh, my boss at the time, he pulled me aside and it's like, this is, it's back to that price of innovation. If you really want to flourish in this, this kind of arena, then you need to play the longer game. You need to realize that probably 75% of what you create may, may not make it, right? So maybe one out of four of your designs or solutions you know, are, are going to be left on the cutting room floor. But it's the one that gets through and the impact that that can have and what that can do for your reputation is quite astounding. And so I had someone there that kind of taught me that. And then I took that forward. And it's not for everybody because oftentimes I was asking people to create, you know, create four solutions for this problem we're trying to solve. Well, why do I have to do four? So we have a fair way of ideas and we can assess them against each other. Well, but if we're only, only one of them is going to, you see where I'm going? So it's not, it's not for everybody, but it's, it's up to the, the leader to create the space that gets people to that point or a team to have each other's back and support each other when, when the work isn't being, you know, chosen or selected, right? That's why I, I always believed in the power of three when it came to trying to solve a, a creative problem. I would do three book cover designs. I would do three versions of the coffee mug and not just um, iterations, a continuum, because what it will do is allow us to have a conversation um, to get to the, the most appropriate successful solution. If I just come in with one design, it's a hostage situation. I mean, so if we don't choose it, then we're going to lose a bunch of time. If we do choose it, is that the best we can do? So that's why I say power of three. You know, I oftentimes drove my team crazy, but I think everybody ultimately would appreciate it now. But there's some really good research on that, isn't there, as well, where when you offer people three choices, 
as opposed to say simply just two. People will make a commitment in in both higher numbers and they stick to that commitment, don't they? Rather than so it's escaping the binary either or. That's right. It's yes. The, uh, that extra choice liberates people to feel that they've got some degree of commitment in it. Yeah, and choice and ownership. You would feel you're more involved in the process because you got to kind of say your piece about what you felt was that. And that gets back to this idea of um, make sure you're involving your client or your audience or your own players in the journey so that they have more pride and ownership over the end result. Again, another learning for me. I did. I created some big events, like working on football all those years. Um, and um, I got to do these big Nike parks, right, uh, where we'd come in and drop them in for a period of time and then pull them back out. And early on, I had no convert. I can tell you this right now. I was not having conversations with the local communities where these parks would temporarily pop up. That's when I get into this idea of leave a a legacy, not just a memory. So to me, you have a much better uh, opportunity to create more ownership with your client or your, the community that you're serving. If you you've taken the time to sit and listen, and that's why I hold up um, the Soweto football training center um, that we, we, we put in in 2010 and here it is, it's 2022 and it's flourishing. It's a reminder as well of all the things that you've learned as you've gone on this incredible yeah. journey through Nike. Um, and you, you talk in the book that competing is exciting, winning is exhilarating, but the true prize is always the self-knowledge and the understanding that you've gained along the way. And you've shared so much of that with us over the last hour. What would you say to people is the single most important piece of understanding that you picked up in all those years at Nike? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and by the way, yeah, Sebco. I wish I had said that, but yeah, it's a great quote and one that I, I take with me. Getting to one, to me, it's always, it's back to the power of three, if I may, you know, be empathetic, be curious, and never play it safe, play to win. I think they're the three most important ingredients to leading a life of innovation. Being empathetic, see what others see, but really spend the time to find the things that others don't so you can serve people better. Being curious, getting outside yourself uh, so you can pull different pieces of inspiration from the world beyond your own and bring that into what you're working on to achieve something great. And then finally, really hard to achieve becoming a, a brand of distinction um, if if you're playing not to lose. And that would be a big thing. I worked at a brand that never played to lose. Playing to win means you're on the offense. Brilliant. We've reached our quick fire questions at the end, Greg. The first one is, what are the three non-negotiable behaviors that you and the people around you must buy into? Be empathetic, be curious, and never play it safe. Play to win. If you could go back to one moment of your life, what would it be and why? Uh, Well, um, this year, as I look back, it would be when I turned 18. I didn't realize I found my birth families this year, uh, just just to put that out there. I didn't. And unfortunately, my birth dad passed away two years ago, so I didn't actually meet him. And I was told that he went to find me um, when I was 18. But because of how laws are and were back then, I would have had to put 
uh, a note in the adoption folder saying, yes, you can come and find me. Well, obviously you're 18, you have other things that you're doing. So if I could do one thing, it would be to go back to that moment, write that note, and maybe we would have had this incredible um, 30-year relationship. I'm interested in how you how you dealt with that, though, because we've had a conversation here about allowing failure, allowing life to take its course, not controlling too much. Just, But then you see a moment like that, and I wonder whether, despite all of these years of being told that it's okay to make mistakes or life is not always going to be perfect, whether that would have still been a really difficult thing yeah, to do. Yeah, I mean, it was very crushing in the moment, uh, absolutely. But what was beautiful that came out of it is I have the, his family and extended family has given me, I have so much memorabilia and objects and documents and photos that I could literally fill this studio as a museum to his life. Um, and the, just the outpouring of all the support and to be able to walk around with essentially his entire story um, all the way down to his wallet with all the information in it to just everything. So um, with, with kind of maybe the, the disappointment and sadness that came with that came this unbelievable um, generosity and, and uh, just um, the relationships I now have for all the people that loved him. And so that, that is, uh, at the end of the day, I'll, I'll, I'll take that. I mean, it's, as I said, it's, it's been a huge life bonus. More often than not, when you, re, you know, reuniting adoptees with birth families, oftentimes doesn't work out. Yeah, but it's, it's so easy for you to think, could have had those 30 years. Yeah. How lovely, though, to think that a few years ago, you didn't have the wallet and the memories and the life of stories. You know, look what you've right. gained rather than what you could have had, I suppose, if that helps. But. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, and I appreciate it, yeah. yeah. Tell us, how important is legacy to you? I think, you know, again, for me, legacy is how you improved the lives of others. Not so much about, I've, I've read this book, a couple books, but one of the books I read is The Second Mountain by David Brooks, right? And, and just that idea of the first mountain oftentimes is just your ascent to achieve like every, you know, oftentimes it's financial, it's, it's professional accolades. Sometimes it's awards right in the ad industry. But um, yeah, um, this, this second mountain to me is really where you, you leave the legacy in terms of how are you impacting uh, the lives of, of everyone else. And that's part of the purpose of the book is trying to share a practical guide um, to help people build stronger emotional connections and to realize their potential to do that. What's been the biggest sacrifice you've made in pursuit of high performance? And would you make it again? I left a lot of friends behind, no question. Um, and I moved pretty quickly, um, right actually through college and into the, into the workplace. And along the way, I, I lost touch with, with many people in pursuit of you know having that competitive edge um and if i could go back maybe try to find that balance because what i what i can tell you today just even watching athletes and and meeting them and working with them like even a roger federer's you can achieve excellence and doing it with humanity and maybe that's not something i i knew because you're locked in in your 20s and 30s 
And your final message for people that have listened to this really interesting conversation for the past hour, um, for your one golden rule to living a high performance life, what would you like to leave people ringing in their ears after this conversation? And I apologize for going with three again, but it's the last three sentences of the book. Be human, create emotion, leave your legacy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Spending time with us. I think it's so interesting to have this conversation because people could look at your book as the you know, former CMO of Nike and think that's a book about design and about brand, but it isn't, is it? It's, a, it's about emotion. It's about reaching people. It's about the power of communication. And um, thank you so much for spending time to come and talk to us about it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you both. I really appreciate it. Damien. Jake. What an interesting guy with the most remarkable life. And, you know, he's obviously spent time around the most high-achieving, successful sports stars on the planet. But what has defined, I think, his success in his career is not the names and what comes with hanging around with LeBron or Ronaldo or whoever. It's the fact that he's realised you can have a big, famous name, but unless you find the emotion or the story behind that name, then you're going to struggle. 100%. Again, it comes back to that one word that we see so often with our high performers, which is empathy rather than opinion. You might see these guys on a TV screen, and but they're one-dimensional if you just view them through that domain, step into their world, understand the demands, the pressures, their own story is where you can then start to connect and create that engagement that Greg made his career doing. I've got a ton of lessons from that. I love the fact that he focuses on the last 10% being the most important. And he ended up picking up one of the coffee cups here on our set and deciding whether it was good enough or not. Um, I also am a really firm believer and I really buy into what he was saying there about allowing you to fail because failure is the price of creativity. And if only more of us could frame our struggles and our failures in that way, while I was being creative, I was pushing the boundaries, I was searching for the golden stuff, you won't get there without the failure. What I found interesting on this then, Jake, is that you run Whisper, you co-founded Whisper, so a big production company. So how, how could you take what Greg was sharing and either reinforce what you're already doing at Whisper or introduce an idea that, that keeps that creativity alive? I think the big thing at Whisper that we would take away from from what Greg said is we would be vulnerable right at the very top of the business. And I think that the problem was, you know, when we set the business up, Sunday and I were, well, it was 10 years ago, so we were both in our early 30s. Yeah. We probably weren't in a position where we were able to be vulnerable and make mistakes and fail because we felt that that would reflect badly on us. It's only now all these years later that we realise it wouldn't reflect badly on us we realise now that it would empower the people in the business to make mistakes as well and to realise that if we can make mistakes at the top of the business, everyone can make a mistake. And I still think we've got some way to go in that regard. I think it's something that almost every business struggles with. Yeah. And how do you almost, like, one of the big messages that I took from what Greg was talking about was the diversity of thought rather than just sort of uh, gender or race diversity it was that cognitive diversity of having people that maybe focus on the bottom line working together with people that are focused on telling a brilliant story what was your take on that i think that that is something that nike managed to foster with the environment that they created and i think that is one of the key things is that don't underestimate the importance of creating 
a culture and an environment that allows all kinds of different people to feel like they belong. It's no good creating a certain culture and then saying, oh yeah, yeah, everyone feels at home here. Well, ask your people. Yeah. Go to your staff and say, do you feel at home in this culture with five white middle-class male leaders in the business? Does that make you as a 21-year-old black female member of staff feel empowered yeah. and feel like it's a culture for you? I would suggest perhaps it doesn't. So I think that we have to be really careful at not saying one thing and doing another. And I think that he is a he is a man who has learned so much from the time he spent in that business. And it was a pleasure for him to share it with us, wasn't it? Oh, it was an absolute delight. And I loved his own his own story married into that as well, of being the outsider looking in and using that skill of observation and empathy to uh, power a hugely successful career. And now it's that time of the podcast where we get to meet someone who listens to the pod and has been inspired. And this is going to be an amazing conversation. I want to introduce you to Rosie, who got in touch to tell us how the podcast was so impactful for her at a key moment in her life. But I think, you know what, Rosie, I think it should be you telling this story. So take it away. So I I sent a message because um, I had been incredibly inspired by listening to the High Performance Podcast. Um, And it had come retrospectively with a a series of successes, let's call them, of my own. I undertook the um, All Arms Pre-Parachute Selection Course, which is the selection course to serve with airborne forces in the British military. And it's considered one of the elite arduous courses in the army. Um, And I did the course, I passed it, um, I earned my wings and I served in an airborne um, brigade. The slight nuance of sort of what I did was that um, I wasn't still um, the only woman to ever past the course and so quite a big moment for the army for myself for the brigade and hopefully for lots of the young girls coming through the army after me the course itself is well in its nature very arduous and on average from start to finish in the seven weeks you'll get an average pass rate of about 32 percent uh men um and so for anyone to pass the course it's 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 a pretty big deal and you also mentioned in your email to us, Rosie, about you opened up the smock that you wore and in the pocket you found a note that you had ripped out and saved. And and that was a really kind of key moment for you, wasn't it? Yeah. So I was asked to come and do some recruiting uh, talks for those that were thinking about becoming officers in the army. I had a bit of imposter syndrome. I thought, what, what do they want to hear from me? I, I, all I did was pass the course. It's, it's not interesting. But it was only around that time that I took out the smock that I've been wearing on all the, ex, uh, the, the physical um, tests we've been doing. Um, and I, I went to wash it and I took out the pocket, a piece of paper, you're right. And I'd forgotten that I put it in there. Uh, and I'm not one for uh, I'm not one for those sort of inspo quotes and the hashtags on Instagram or anything, but I'd given to one of my really good friends um, uh, a calendar of a happy note per day, and you rip it off and you get a happy note every day to make you feel good about whatever you're doing. And on the first day of the test week, so the final week where you do your eight tests um, to pass the course, the quote that came up was, "Be strong. You never know who you're inspiring." And I did look at it in the morning in my glum state of they're never going to let me pass the course. They never let women pass the course. I thought, oh, do you know what? Actually, I'm actually going to take my own advice here. And I ripped off the piece of paper and I put it in my smock and it stayed in there for the whole course. And obviously I went on to pass the course. And it was only, though, after the course, when I actually gave myself time to reflect on the performance, when I unzipped that pocket and I saw the note and I realised, oh, 
it's not about my one success, me saying, oh, I just passed a course. It's about the process. It's about the, the high performance. Now I, now I can talk about high performance. The high performance process that I went through to get there. Um, it was about being strong at every moment because somebody somewhere is being inspired. And you might not think it, but everybody inspires somebody. Um, and I think that that gave me a real, that was a real moment for me where I realized you don't need to be an Olympic athlete to inspire someone. Um, in the same way that when I listen to your podcast, I'm as inspired, if not more inspired by, by people I can't relate to because they, they think outside of a box of what I'm used to. So Chrissy Wellington, for me, I'm a triathlete. So she was perfect. She, everything she said, I thought, yeah, tick, tick, I do that. But then I listened to a footballer or a football manager um, or a golfer or a Formula One driver. And I think, mm, well, I don't really know what he talks about. But then when he discusses his processes, his challenges, his mindset, I'm actually more challenged by that. Um, and I realise that I'm as inspired by him as I am by, by somebody in my own field. Brilliant. Well, first of all, Rosie, congratulations on behalf of the whole of the high performance team on passing what sounds like a pretty ar uh, arduous programme. But one of our favourite quotes is that success leaves clues. So when you reflect on passing that course and the messages you that you pass on to the next generation of other females looking to do the same, what are the clues that you pass on to them that they can take away and apply to their own lives? I think for me, well, it's, it's self-belief and the application of challenge, challenging the mind, challenging the body, challenging the self. I'm not only able to talk about passing P Company, I'm not only able to, to talk about becoming an officer in the army because it, I, I understand the, the, the process of, of challenging oneself um, along the way. And I think it's, it's all about seizing moments i don't want to i don't want to use um uh, well-known quotes and just say seize the day but very much seize those moments and um if you if you even think for a moment that you can why would you not we really do have nothing to lose in just challenging ourselves to be the best that we can be i realized that actually it was about finding where your limits are and and seeking them and uh and running at them head first and just seeing where they get you can I ask you when it was when you were on selection and it was the lowest, hardest, most difficult point? What was the tool that you used to get yourself through that? Because there, there will, without question, be viewers listening to this who could um, make good use of your wisdom in this area. I'm a quite a logical thinker. I really enjoy anything sort of cryptical, and I do crosswords and I do Scrabble games and stuff, and that's how I sort of channel my energy and I channel my my fears and my feelings because I really did have some low moments. I can't. I honestly can't look back at the course and tell young girls, oh, I was fine. I was confident the whole way through. Have confidence because I wasn't. Um, particularly being the girl, uh, the only girl on my course, I was housed in a different area. I didn't have the camaraderie of a shared room with all the guys after each event talking about how we did. I went back into my four walls and I closed the door and I, I went into myself and said, I'm never going to pass. I had this huge self-doubt. But then I started playing Scrabble, which really calmed me. And um, it really started making me start looking at everything I was doing with, with more of a logic of, oh, there's always something to be found in yourself. Everything we do in life, we are given, let's say, our seven letters. And they don't, they don't say anything. They mean nothing. Um, but somebody 
tells you, whether that's yourself or a podcast or a coach, they say to you, by the way, there's a, there's a seven letter word in there. Brilliant. That Rosie, you're an inspiration. You're breaking down doors for others to walk through. You are the epitome of high performance. And so for us to hear that our little podcast and our conversations have inspired you is, um, is extremely humbling for us. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us and of course, to speak to the high performance audience. Thank you so much, Jake and Damien. <laughs> You know what, Damien, it almost feels to me like that needs a, a proper sort of post-conversation conversation like we would normally do after each episode. It's very interesting, isn't it, that someone would be as successful and high-achieving and as high-performance as Rosie and still get inspiration from the conversations on this podcast. And I'm not saying that we're the only place you can get that, but it is a reminder just to have an open mind. You can achieve as much as her and still be looking and searching and growing in other areas. Yeah, I think that, again, I'd, I'd quote Dr. Rongan Chatterjee from our chat the other week about he doesn't regard himself as a doctor, he doesn't regard himself as a father, doesn't regard himself as a podcast host, he regards himself as a curious individual. And any environment he goes into, he adopts that mindset and curiosity to work out how he can help people and make a difference. And I think we can all do with adopting a bit of Rongan's mentality and exactly what Rose has done there. Just come to these podcasts with an open mind, be curious about what it says about yourself and how you can take away and apply some of it. And as always, this week, we've had loads of nice messages from you. We had one here from Shell who got in touch on Instagram saying, quick question, I've just uh, landed a job, which I never expected to get. I have severe imposter syndrome kicking in. Is there any of your interviews you think would be beneficial for me to listen to? And all I'd say, Damien, is to Shell, listen to what Rosie just said. I mean, she is achieving the most remarkable things. And she said in our interview, yeah, I had imposter syndrome. I think... You, we, just, we just have to get it in our heads that everybody has imposter syndrome. Everyone is making it up. No one can believe they're quite on the journey that they're on. And everyone feels that they've got loads of issues that no one else knows about. Like you and me always say, before we go out on stage to do our live high performance nights, the people in the audience are waiting to hear all the things we know. And all we're thinking about is all the things that we don't know. And that is the human brain. And, you know, it's learning to live with it rather than telling it to go away, I think, is the answer, probably. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, self-awareness is the first step. And the fact that Shell is aware that that's how she's feeling, she can then adopt some of the strategies that we've heard, say, Dr. Pippa Grain, see it, face it, and then replace it. So if you recognise that imposter syndrome is there, describe what that means for you. What is it that, that that says about you? And then once you've faced it, then you can start to replace it and say, so how can you use that fuel that you feel to write a more positive story for yourself? Thank you as well to all the lovely comments we got about the episode with Lewis Morgan. Um, we had a message here from Daniel Orr who said, what struck me was Lewis's three values, love, empathy, and happiness. We have similar values at my business, Talent Lab, be kind, have ambition, show respect, and love what you do. And Alex Hill also got in touch to say, loving the podcasts. I messaged previously mentioning how I was trained to be a commercial pilot. Now I've finally completed the training. I had a difficult period near the end. However, I failed my final exam, which put me in a really bad place, made me lose all my confidence. I was also making many excuses, blaming everything and everyone apart from myself. And then I thought of the High Performance Podcast, I remembered the 100% responsibility rule. Listening to your podcast, applying various skills and lessons I learned along the way from you guys and your guests has been a great support for me. 
my family and my partner helping me get through the difficult time and finally pass my exam i wanted to say a big thank you that's from alex hill well done alex right well done alex yeah i love the fact that it's a process there though it's not just the outcome but it's what is learned along the way that again echoes so many of our high performers guests that and with class alex is one of them absolutely and you know it's a reminder as well guys please don't just listen to this podcast hear the conversations think oh yeah that was cool and then forget about them as you heard there from alex as you heard from daniel and talent lab um actually as rosie just spoke to us about it's about making notes it's about using the skills it's about reminding yourself it's about going back for more and if you want to get more from us then every single monday we release a motivational email if you want to be part of the gang if you want to get a lovely hit of high performance motivation to your inbox every monday then just go to thehighperformancepodcast.com sign up for our members club it's free so you don't have to pay anything you just need to go deeper with high performance and um yeah i think you really enjoy getting that email and having a look at all the other stuff we offer on there right damon i'd echo that jake i think that i feel really comfortable when we talk about whether it's the newsletter whether it's the podcast whether it's joining the circle because we're not trying to sell anybody anything it is there free it's a free resource and it goes very much to the heart of the purpose behind this podcast which is helping as many people as we can move closer to a high performance life and if we can play our small part in doing that and giving people that free resource it validates our our own sense of purpose right top man damien thank you very much thanks jake loved it as always me too a uh, big thanks of course to our brilliant guest uh, greg hoffman his book is out now i would strongly recommend you get your hands on it i thought it was fantastic i'll be implementing it in all the businesses that i'm involved in a uh, big thanks to eve to Gemma, to hannah to will to finn from rethink audio but most of all thanks to you for coming back once more to high performance remember there is no secret it is all there for you be your own biggest cheerleader and make world-class basics your calling card. We'll see you next time. Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.